0: Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing.
1: Here we go. Back for another installment of the Talent Tank on this uh, glorious day, I'm glad everyone tuned in for this uh, amazing individual I'm looking at here on uh, the Skype screen, Ryan Miller of Campbell Enterprises. Ryan, how are you, man? Doing good out here in Arizona. And and you know, there's people, you're right. And we're about two, two hour differential. It's, uh, you're two hours behind me. And, and people probably listen going, Ryan, who's Ryan? We're talking about Miller. When you talk about what's going on at Campbell's and you talk about Miller. This is the guy that you get. You get Miller, not Eric Miller. That's, that's the East Coast Miller. This is the, the West Coast Miller. Last name only. No relation. He's laughing. <laughs> Oh man. Well, I'll go I'll go in, right while Ryan's laughing, get the laughs, laughs out, right? Well, so Miller, is the current driver of the number 35 AZ, the the white Monster Energy, Nitto, Curry car out of the Campbell Enterprises stables. You guys might know who number 35 normally is, that's actually Bailey Campbell. And Bailey, Bailey is expecting, so we're all celebrating.
0: Yep, yeah. yeah. She asked me uh, not too long ago if I wanted to drive her car, and I wondered why. She said, well, we're going to be having a little baby. And I said, oh, well, congrats. (laughs) So that was kind of unexpected. Her her and Brian, it would have only been odd if she'd asked you
1: to drink her beer for her, right? (laughs) Yeah. Everybody loves Bailey. I love Bailey. Bailey's amazing. It's been very cool to watch her grow up. In, in motorsports with, you know, her father, Shannon, her brother, Waylon. They are the racing family in Ultra 4. We have lots of racing families, but they are probably one of the better-known names, and they've certainly been around the longest as a, a family. And those kids, Bailey and Waylon, have been around forever. And now uh, Bailey's um, fiancé, Brian. Brian was on the Talent Tank back around KOH. He was one of the KOH special episodes. Love that guy. Great dude. And so I'm really ex- – God, I'm just kind of so excited for – for Tammy and, uh, and to you know and, and she to be you know an, you know they already have one grandchild now they're going to have two.
0: Yep. They're excited. They just had the the party a couple two weeks ago I think to find out if what they were having. So.
1: And I don't I don't want to bust it, but I think I know. But baby girl?
0: Yes, it's a girl.
1: That's okay. That's yep. that's what I thought I'd heard. I can't remember who told me, but I better keep my source quiet on that. But yeah, someone told me, but then I did <laughs> feel like I saw it saw a post about it and then I was messaging with Shannon because that's actually how how you got your interview case was Shannon hand delivered your case to my case to you well actually it was Bailey Oh Bailey Oh Bailey <laughs> <laughs> so, so Shannon just, he took credit for it on text message. Okay. Ryan's got it.
0: <laughs> I think he made sure that it uh, made it through the channels to me, which Bailey is the one who runs
1: the show. Right. I mean, she, the that eyes, absolutely. The, the eyes, get, the, eye the T's get crossed. Yeah. So if you know, we will definitely get into talking about Campbell's here in a little bit. So I don't, I don't want to you know, spo- do too much spoiler work on the front, but I did, did want everyone to understand who I've got on, on with us today. Ryan Miller also goes by Miller. It's just straight up. Of Campbell Enterprises And he is the current driver of the 35 car And you got, you're got you going to finish out this season Right So you got Nationals yep. coming up And then you're going to be the KOH
0: As far as I know that's the plan Because uh, ba- Bailey will still Probably have that little baby in her I think she's due at the end of February Which that was a whole When she told me that I was really bummed Because of how this year's KOH went we, we had already talked about it, that we were ready to go back for 2021 and put that car on the top. And that
1: conversation is coming here. It, yeah, It yeah. is coming. We're <laughs> going to talk about that because, oh, my God, what an amazing, amazing. The whole world was tilting pulling for her, and it just didn't, didn't work out. But, and then co-driving for you, because you've been Bailey's co-driver, co-driving for you is Michael Pendleton.
0: Yeah, Mike. Mike just co-drove with me in uh, in Moab this last weekend. So, uh, I mean, he's been he's been around the cars. Uh, he's been to the shop. He's been at Koh with us. He actually co-drives with Wayland in the UTVs. So he's not a stranger to any of this. It's just different car, you know,
1: and different driver.
0: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Let's
1: talk about uh, that down the road where I want to talk about uh, the difference be- between because you used to co-drive for Wayland. Yep in a big car. And then now Waylon went to, you know, he's single seat and Brian's in a twin single seater, but you've been filling in next to Bailey and Bailey used to have Terry, Terry Madden as a co-driver. And then Terry went on to do his stuff. And now you're, you're back in there. So I'm excited to see you in there, but uh, let's talk about current affairs, current affairs, Moab. Moab was last week. Yes, sir. So your first four, a four, a four, a man, I don't even know if I said that right. Four, a out in, 35 and I saw well one you guys you guys were running an amazing race is what I saw initially and I saw and I don't know any of the details but I did see live video of you coming in with two right side flats. I don't know what lap that was but I can tell
0: you what lap that was. <laughs> I know you that, can. Was, that was lap 3. We started off pretty good. We had pre-ran, Mike and I, we picked our pace before the, you know, before we even qualified and we knew this was the pace we're going to run on race day. This is what we feel comfortable with. This is what we're smooth at. This is where we can run the car. This is where we need to be careful. Lap three, I don't know what happened. Um, we had picked off a couple of cars here and there. We were right, right behind Vaughn, and we were just in a little gravel wash. It didn't have any rocks, nothing. And all of a sudden, we heard tires go flat, and we're like, "Is that our tires? Like, there, there's nothing to run over here. Like, there has to, you know." And we're like. Uh, I mean, car feels kind of all right. It feels weird, but, um, and I guess they were going down slowly. I went back and watched the live footage just to see what, what happened. And you could only tell the rear was flat by then. But by the time we, you know, we decided we'll just, you know, we got like two miles to go to the pit. Let's just take it easy, get it to the pit. The pit will be faster at changing it than us getting out somewhere on the side of the hill out here. By the time we, we were going down, towards the uphill, towards the pit. We knew we had two flats then. And same side. Yeah. Yeah. Same side. Passenger side. It's funny because when I went back and watched the live feed, everyone that crossed that camera where we had the flats, they were like 90% passenger side flats. And I'm like, there's nothing there. I don't understand why, you know, what happened. So it was kind of a mystery, but going back and watching it, I guess we were, we were in first then. And I had no clue. Uh, we were just running our race at the pace that we thought was, was going to be all right and, and put us up near the front. You know, and we just wanted to get Bailey a solid finish, you know, little did we know. And people told us after the race, Hey, you guys were in first, you know, those first couple laps. And we're like, wow. Okay. It didn't feel like we were, you know, abusing anything or, or running too fast or anything. We knew we had passed a couple, couple of the big dogs, but where, where did you know qualify? You qualified really well too, though. Yeah, we were 11th, Yeah, which normally I don't like qualifying because, <laughs> uh, you know, there's guys that that'll take chances at certain things. And, you know, that's not my role in this is uh, I'm not out there to put that car on the pole. I'm out there to get it near the front. And however, the cards fall, that's that's how they fall. And, and, you know, we're trying to get Bailey a solid finish. But yeah, we were really happy with our 11th qualifying position because we knew we were we were in a good spot to start the race. You know, we were behind the Gomez brothers, Cody Addington, Lauren Healy, Vaughn Gittin, Shannon, Paul, Bailey, you know, all those guys. And actually, when we had those those two flats, we had passed everyone but Paul, Bailey, Shannon, and we were right behind
1: Vaughn at that time. I mean, that was outstanding. So there's a, there's a handful of guys that are kind of like advisors that I bounce ideas off of and bounce people off of – and bounce conversation off of and get background and start just advisors. So just a good, good, good core group of folks that are involved in Ultra four. And uh, they knew that we were set up for this week. And so I, I start getting texts. They're like, Ryan Miller is on fire. This dude is killing it. Like, where did he come from? Like they, but they knew, they knew, you know, your background, they knew the story, but at the same time, they're like, why hadn't he been driving longer, Well, it's Bailey's car, you know? <laughs> yeah. Why didn't Bailey get pregnant sooner? Damn it, Bailey.
0: <laughs> no, no, I um, I mean, to be honest, I've actually raced on a very similar course there before for a few years in Dirt Riot. I was comfortable with the course because I knew about 60% of it and I knew what could hurt you and what, what couldn't. The rest of it wasn't that bad. We already knew our pace. We already picked it before the race started, and we said, "This is how we're going to run. We're going to be smooth. We're going to try not to kill tires. We're going to get it to the finish." So, so what did you think about
1: about the course? Did you think Ultra Four put on they, they put put together a good course? That's JT and company that they they managed oh, yeah. it well.
0: I yeah, I told JT and Dave they did a awesome job setting up that race. I actually talked to J to JT after pre running about the course, and it, I mean it, it's a course where you don't need, uh, you know, 850 horsepower. It's a driver course.
1: No, one of the pieces of feedback I got was like JP Gomez saying he was never been so sore after a race as that race. He was super sore on Sunday, Monday versus KOH. He wasn't sore at all after a KOH and KOH is hours and hours and hours longer. He said it was just brutal
0: on the body. Is that fair? I didn't feel that way. I know the course itself is. I I talked to Bailey a little bit ago, and I was telling her I would compare it to if you took out all the desert at Koh and only raced the rocks. This was still more than that. Well, there you go. So you know, it's definitely a driver course, but I, I don't know. I just felt our we had our car set up good, and it you know we were driving it hard where we could and taking it easy where we needed to take it easy, and I didn't I didn't really feel you know, beat up at all. I mean, I actually talked to Levi Shirley and he said, I got to be honest with you. I got to ask you a question. Do your arms hurt? And I said, yeah, actually they do because there's so much steering going on because every 50 feet you had to make a turn.
1: Oh, that'll wear you out. (laughs) Yeah. You were running first. You were having a great run until you weren't right. Yeah. What ultimately ended up being your issue?
0: Well, the two flats slowed us down uh, significantly, especially when we pulled into the pit because despite The two flats, Shannon also flatted on the same lap on passenger front, go figure. He pulled into the pit, they said, like 20 seconds ahead of us. So they're working. They just got the jack under his car and we pull in right behind him. We had already warned him we have a flat tire, so they knew we were coming. I don't think they knew that we were that close behind him. So they all look over at us as we pulled in and we're like, "Uh uh-oh. That's (laughs) a problem. You two both
1: aren't supposed to be here at the same time.
0: Yeah, well, Brian pulled in behind us, too, with a flat. Oh. So, so we had three cars in the pit at the same time with four flat tires. So that was kind of a, a cluster, if you will. You know, they were only set up to pit one car at a time. So we had to wait till Shannon was done before they could pit us, and they had to change two tires. And then, and then, then we finally got to take off. So, you know, most of those positions we had gained physically, we gave up which wasn't, you know, we're still good on time, but we ran laps four, five, six, seven, real clean, no problems, no issues. We actually finally asked the pit how we were doing after we finished our seventh lap. And they said, You're fifth physically, we're not sure on time. And I guess I was, I was up there on time too, at least fifth. We ended up making it to the top of Green Day and same spot, passenger front flat. <laughs> Like, you got to be kidding me, but that one, it wasn't just some random thing in the bottom. It, I actually like clipped a rock that was in the bank. It was 100% my fault. And I was like, well, we're fifth physically. We got a half of a lap to go. Let's just limp it to the finish. We started driving. We made it about a quarter more way through the lap. So we're about three quarters through, and there's one hill climb that you got to go up before you descend down into strike ravine. And it wouldn't go up the hill. we're like, what's going on? So I backed up, gave it a little throttle, still nothing. The front end just kind of fell off sideways off starting up the hill. So I knew that we had nothing in the rear end. So I checked transfer case shifters all good. My co-driver jumped out. I gave it a little throttle to spin it. And he said, yeah, drive shaft spinning. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, like obviously something's wrong, but there was no noise in the car. No clunking, no grinding, no nothing. So we were just baffled as to what could be wrong. So we decided, well, this is the last hill climb. If we can get up this, we can get to the finish and we're getting to the finish. We changed the front tire. So we had two good tires on the front and Mike pulled 1,000, 1,500 total feet of winch line, I'd say. We winched all the way. We were winching to tree, to tree, to rock. There was a broken car on the hill we winched to, more trees, more rocks. We got it to the top of the hill, and Mike was absolutely spent, and he jumped in. Uh, we went down the hill, down to Britney Spears. We had to pull winch for like two feet in Britney Spears just to make the pivot up around a rock. I just kind of jumped it up on there, got it around, and it – hooked on a rock on the driver rear and he winched us off that and we drove it to the finish from there in front only but obviously we gave up a ton of time doing that
1: yeah
0: that's and that's racing right The other thing that added to the fun was uh, the impact in the car didn't work. So we had to change the tire manually. (laughs) So that took a little bit extra.
1: That's why Michael Pendleton gets paid the big bucks.
0: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) There was was a couple of times going up that hill. He ran back and he needed some water because we were pulling winch. The winch on the front of that car has got, I don't know, 200 feet of rope or something. And there'd be times where I couldn't even see him. He's around the corner in a tree hooking me up. And then he'd run back around the corner and tell me start winching. You know, we did that a dozen times up that hill.
1: Uh, that makes for a long day,
0: but that guy was gassed. Yep, yep. But we were we were determined to get that eighth lap in. So and so, what was your final finish? Uh, we ended up seventeenth. We were that's the what, the last car to finish on the last lap. Hey, but you, but you got it done. That's what matters,
1: and that's part of and that's part of you. That's part of your mantra. That's like I don't quit. Yep.
0: That's one thing. Uh, I, I was talking to Bailey about this before and I, I was trying to come up with, I don't think we've ever DNF'd a race in her old solid axle car or the new IFS car.
1: Hey, that's a good stat. Just keep going. Always
0: got it to the finish. That's an
1: amazing stat. Well, I want to I want to continue down. I got a couple more Moab questions here, but these are these aren't necessarily about the race or, or your race. This is kind of about the race in general, and these are kind of a little bit, okay. uh, but little, little interesting, little um, maybe hot topics is what I call them. As we exit the race, there was some a lot of discussion about uh, the race course width, and okay. people were had witnessed what they believe they witnessed people to have short coursed without you know going into names. I don't think that's fair to discuss, but what I think what is fair to discuss is, you know, there's nothing in the rule book that talks about race course width and which I wouldn't think there would be because you can't make the same race course width work for Kentucky or work for Roush Creek or work for Oklahoma or work for, you know, uh Fallon or work for Vegas. Especially Moab.
0: Or yeah, or Moab. There was times where we literally hung 180 turns and went back the same way we just came 50 feet to the side of it. Exactly. So to go uh you know
1: what what I've heard what's circulated back to me is no, it's 150 feet either side of the center line of the course. And and man, I'm like, man, I've never I've never heard that except for when we've talked about the center line at KOH and I always thought the center line at KOH in the desert was 100 either way, but in the rocks it's themselves, it was 50. Like down in the canyons, yeah. I thought it was 50.
0: but I, I don't think there was ever a number. I know um, I know this is, a, like you say, a hot topic. Right. No, seriously. It was down in San Felipe last year. Like you said, not naming names, but I, I had discussions with some people that asked me what I thought that rule was supposed to be after that race. As far as I knew, it's always 150 feet in the desert. But at KOH, you know, JT or, or Dave always say, you have to stay in the canyon on the rock trails. Um, you have to stay in the canyon. You have to stay in the canyon, which this year they they said, all right, if you want to take all the bypasses along the side on lap two, you can. But on lap three, you have to stay in the bottom of the canyon. No, you know, taking any little side hills up and around, anything like that, which you know, like you say, it's hard to adapt one single rule to all the races, or to every little segment of the race. Yeah, but like in Moab, there is there's times you're you're in the same canyon going up and down. Right. So you know, how does that work? You know? Hey,
1: so you're you're off course going up and on course coming back. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know, but you know, it's it's the same thing. Like if you chop a corner obviously the apex of the corner is the furthest point of the course. So you'd have to stay within 150 feet of that, I guess. I don't know. Well, I know
1: I looked at the rule book and I got to say, you know, it's, I can see why there's, well, let's, let me back up. I don't believe in having a rule book that is 600 pages. I don't believe in that. I don't believe you should have to define every single thing about the race, the car, the safety. You shouldn't have to really put dot your I's and T's for everything. And to expect ultra four to do that, I think is, a disservice to them and a disservice to anyone that wants to race their series but that said i think i'd like to see a rule in there that says race course is a maximum of 150 feet either side if it's going to be smaller it will be discussed in the driver's meeting yeah and each each race gets a different driver's meeting so at a minimum everyone knows you can 150 feet is the maximum it will ever be on any race course at any given time on any segment. But on specific race courses, you have this different rules. Like, it's still going to be the maximum 150, but it may be less.
0: Yeah, that discussion always happens at KOH because people always ask, you know, can we take the side hill through Clawhammer or you know, uh, going up upper, you know, or lower big Johnson. Can you, you know, take the sand Hill on the side through half the trail or whatever, you know, and all that always gets discussed. Uh, the hot ones, always the up and over bypass for aftershock.
1: Right. I have a feeling like I would be even running what I would feel like is the cleanest race. I still feel like I would ha- be having doubts about, did I just short course? Did, I didn't intentionally do it, but did I just, yeah. yeah. And And that's, that's not racing. That sucks. But like I said, I, I know there was a, there was a lot of contention again at this ratio. You know, it seems like lately we've all been only been talking about timing issues, but it seems like with USAC stepping in, at least we believe the time this time, but you know, there's no real way to check it, their work. So now it used to be ultra four. We could kind of check their work a little bit. Now it's like, well, we've, there's no ability to publicly audit it, but at least we're supposed to
0: have more faith in USAC, right? They still have the data. I mean, that doesn't lie. Yeah. And, you know, like uh, what came up in Tennessee, that was actually from me because we knew that we had finished at least third in that race and they had us down as fourth and had Shannon as third. And Shannon's like, there's no way. Bailey beat me. Like straight, like she started 12 places behind me and finished two minutes behind me That on 30-second start intervals. That doesn't make sense. And – you know, discussing with some ultra four people, they're like, well, you know, all you guys in the top teams are usually keeping times as well. Cause you have an idea of who's behind you, who's in front of you, what place you're in on corrected time. Cause even uh, Josh Weiler at that race who finished second, he even said after we finished, man, it's going to be really close between you guys and us for second. And it ended up being like 20 or 25 seconds or something. So whenever they said that, Josh beat us by nine minutes we're like nah, that ain't right no that's not right so and it is true like um like we do obviously Josh does I'm sure Eric Eric Miller you know almost same team you know the gomez is time they, they all keep time yeah they know exactly where they're at on time
1: so yeah you have to you have to know where you can push and not push and 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 who's looking where I mean even if you can do the Intel and know where the other team's spotters are and know where they have You know, blind spots, sometimes you can get a run on the competition in front of you. In the blind spot, you know, you can run hard in their blind spot between spotters. And next thing you know, you've got a good run on them, and they didn't realize it. Yeah. As we get into, you know, talking really deep strategy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I guess uh, last year at Ridgecrest, when we ended up second, like 30 30 seconds behind JP, he said that uh, his brothers had binoculars, And they were at the pit and they were timing us from, we were so far away. They couldn't see exactly where we were, but they had binoculars and they were timing us in random splits, uh, where the race course paralleled the highway. And they were radioing to him saying, you need to go faster. You need to go faster. (laughs) She still got you on time. And so we knew that we needed to chase him down too. So we were both running crazy to the finish line, you know, just pushing, pushing all limits. I mean, but oh, that's, yeah.
1: that's what you have to do. And that's just, I, I consider that just smart race intelligence. And there is some teams out there that definitely have the race intelligence on lockdown. I mean, they're, they're pretty hardcore about that. So it's when there's a discrepancy in timing or whatever, it falls out pretty quick. So to my next question, though, which is along that, why do you think that there is a reluctance
0: in ultra four to throw a red card? I don't know. It's probably more of a respect thing. Unless you have the hard evidence, you know, that like, are you really going to just speculate and say, I think someone did this or or anything like that? You know, because a lot of these guys, they all help each other out off off the course. Right. On the course, I mean, you know, the helmet's on. And as JT says, everyone gets stupid. But uh, I think back to uh, Racing Dirt Riot, Big Rich made a thing where he said, if you want to throw a red card, you got to put a hundred bucks down. And if you're wrong, the hundred bucks goes to the guy you threw the red card against. He didn't want people just throwing red cards, you know, out of the blue at anything and everything because they were crying about this or that, whatever. And so I think it's kind of a, probably a respect thing, I guess. You know, unless, unless you know someone for sure did something, you know, are you really going to, going to say something?
1: Yeah. Unless you have the hard evidence. Yeah. I think that is absolutely part of it. We've just seen such a reluctance to see red cards thrown. No one likes calling another guy a cheater or calling him a liar or calling him whatever. And no one wants to be called a liar or a cheater or I can't believe you would accuse me of that. Like I didn't do that. And, and this kind of goes back to my, my point about the, I would probably get DQ'd for for short coursing for something I didn't realize I was short coursing. And, 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 that's what would happen. It would be like, Hey, you know, you get thrown a red car. We're like, well, you know, what for? And they're like, well, you took that bypass. Wait, that I, I did, uh I wasn't being nefarious about it. Like I didn't, it wasn't an intentional, yeah. but damn it. uh, Yeah. I absolutely took that line. I, I remember, I want to say it was like KOH 10 or 11 where Slosson. I thought, I think I'm going to say it's 10 Slosson one. And then they went and looked, they looked at it and uh, he'd taken a bypass or a shortcut at the top of like Sunbonnet or Highway 2021 20, or something, somewhere in there in that part of uh, the KOH course. And I remember hearing, you know, that Dave and Jeff or whatever, they went and talked to him and they said, at the top of that, which way did you go? And he goes, I went right. Was I supposed to go left? And they're like, yeah. He's like, there it was. And he gave up, you know, he, he didn't actually end up yeah. winning or whatever, or maybe it was third. I, I, I feel like the... I feel like it was for the win though, but man, yeah. that's hard. And so I I think there is that, I think I'm with you there on the reluctance to throw the red card, but that said we continue to end up in these kind of situations where it's a, afterwards, there's a lot of rumors and drama. And I have people that saw him and they videotaped him, you know, he was greater than 150 feet out of the course. And, oh, yeah, well, if you have the evidence and and it made a material difference or even if it didn't make a material difference i think you know there should be some level of obligation of you know throwing it out there at least no one wants yeah in the guys that it's happened to they don't want to win because they cheated or they don't want that they're all i just don't think there's anyone out there racing today that is like you know what i'm going out i'm pre-running to find places to cheat
0: yeah i mean there's there's competitive advantage you know of if I chop this corner, I'm faster here instead of going here to there and it's within 150 feet. Okay. That's legal. We're out in the desert, whatever the rocks I think is where it's, it's a, a big, big, big gray area. Cause 150 feet in rocks is huge, you know, well, 150 yeah, yeah. feet out in the desert. Isn't that huge? <laughs> yeah. And it, the other thing that you go back to is, is like there's trackers on the cars. So you can see exactly where the cars went, you know, within inches.
1: Yeah. Literally there's satellites linking up in space telling you where that race car <laughs> went. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about you, man. Let's, let's get off of, uh, the, the, the drama and the hoopla of last weekend in Moab. Let's talk about Ryan Miller. Ryan, Ryan's a, uh, he's a Phoenix guy, but you live in Tol- in Tucson now.
0: Yep. Yep. Grew up in Phoenix, uh, all the way up through high school. Um, moved down to Tucson to go to U of A and here I am.
1: Growing up though, mom, dad, siblings. You have any siblings? You're an only kid. Yeah. I have a younger sister. You have a younger sister. Does she live out in Phoenix? She lives in Phoenix
0: still. Yeah. Ah, nice. What made you move to Tucson? U of A. Oh, okay. I I got a scholarship to go to U of A. So that's what I did. So,
1: you're jumping ahead of my story, but I'm okay with that. So, you're a Wildcat. You uh, have a degree in engineering. I do know that. Uh, yes, sir. I, I, w- I wasn't shocked at the engineering degree after you hang out with you a little bit. You're like, you can tell it. But uh, the Wildcats, my alma mater is also the Wildcats. So, I saw that. I was like, all right. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I like that. There's a lot of Wildcat schools. There, it, <laughs> it, it turns out there are. It turns out there, there, there really are. And then your dad got you into uh, – got you into wheeling really early, young age, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, I mean, he would set me on, on his lap when I was five, six, seven, and he would put the, push the gas and let me steer his truck around. So <laughs> that's how I, that's how I started driving. What kind of truck was it? It was a 72 Chevy four wheel drive. Ah, uh, nice. Long bed, short bed. That, it was a short bed Cheyenne super. It was the the one that everyone wants nowadays. And that was supposed to be my truck when I turned 16, but he ended up uh, hitting some black ice on a hunting trip and totaled it.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's, that's so awful. What color was it?
0: It was uh, the blue and white.
1: Oh yeah, of course. Right. You know, the, it's either yeah. that or, or the black. Those are the two sought out. Yeah. Right. Those are your Chevy's the 72 is the only model i can tell, like i look at and tell that it's a 72 cuz it has the little uh, the little two reflectors on the uh the fender on the front of the fender between the front wheel and the grill on each side and no other years have those so and then some something about when you look in the doors Right next to the
0: wing, well, I, I can nerd out for you here for a minute because I, I built 67 to 72 Chevys for about 10 years. A 72 has the, the rear view mirror mounted to the windshield, okay. and it also has an exposed Phillips screw underneath where the wing window yep. post comes down into the door on the and inside, the panels, on the interior. Yeah, and the door panels are different.
1: The door panel is different. I didn't know the door panels are different, but yeah, it's that exposed screw. So if you, but you got to look in it, but from the outside, yes. the only pl- yeah. other place I'd the only other telltale I knew was just that reflector. It is a reflector, right? Yeah, right. It's
0: it's a side marker and a reflector. Yeah, but they, they had them from sixty eight to seventy two, but they changed them slightly. So the seventy two was just a little different. Yeah,
1: I had a friend yeah. that was he was all laid up with seventy twos, and I kind of you know you hang around with the same guy long enough, you kind of start understanding what he what he what he's talking about, right? Yeah, man. So growing up, what what else were you into? Do you play any sports? I played basketball a lot, baseball. Cuz you're a you're kick. a big guy. What are you are you you're
0: like 6'1, 6'2? 6'1. Yeah. So I grew up playing basketball mostly and baseball and all the way up till into high school. And then my high school counselor, I didn't play basketball or baseball at the school. I just played leagues um, with some buddies. I ended up he said, "You need to do something extracurricular." And I was like, okay. And he's like, I'm the tennis coach. Come out and play tennis. Okay. Turns out I'm really good at tennis. No (laughs) kidding. In uh, two weeks before the season started, i never picked up a tennis racket in my life. Made the varsity team as a freshman. Killer. And was on varsity for four years. And I think I had the most wins in total for varsity ever in school history. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and you never played before all these people that have been struggling and lessons and yeah. all that. And you just show up and you're just like, what?
0: Yeah, sure. But it's, I actually liked playing doubles better than singles. I, I don't know, but uh, I just did that. So I, I did that every year and it was, it was just kind of, it was fun. I still, I still play a little bit here and there or racquetball or a uh, pickleball, my uh, father-in-law and mother-in-law play pickleball all the time up at their cabin. And so every time we go up there, they ask me if I want to go play. And I'm like, sure. And I'll go play for three or four hours. It's just, I like ping pong, anything with a paddle really.
1: <laughs> I'm l- learning so much about, see, this is the, why we do the talent tank and we get these insight on these guys. So how long have I known you? How long have we uh, known each other? Probably
0: close to 10 years, probably something At like least that eight or nine. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then just hanging out, you know, me hanging out with the, the, the Campbell's like in person with you, like your numbers in my phone, probably five or six, maybe seven, somewhere in there. But yeah, exactly. I never tennis player. I, I love it. I start calling you I, actually, I,
0: I'd say my favorite is ping pong
1: though. I love ping pong. <laughs> There's so <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. I, I, I fully, I, I play beer pong.
0: I, I play that too.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm okay at that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm I'm pretty good at that one too. Yeah. Add some
1: time around it, right? <laughs> oh man. Your dad though, he was in flat fender Jeeps
0: and I know you are still too today. How did that kind of materialize? Going back to my dad, putting me on his lap and driving his truck around when I was five, I'd say I'm pretty sure I was five. My sister was three. I remember that. Um, my parents were like, we want to buy property up in the mountains. Uh, We want to get away out of Phoenix on the weekends and, you know, in the summer. And okay. So they bought what started out as an acre up in Northern Arizona in the White Mountains, which is uh, for people that don't know, it's like six, 7,000 feet on average up there, at least above the rim. So it's all pine trees and cool weather. So they bought that. They just parked a, a large travel trailer there, like go up there, stay for the weekend. Okay. Whatever. That Christmas, my dad bought my sister and I a quad to drive around up there. So I started riding a quad when I was five, and she started when she was three. And he, you know, that happened for, that lasted about a year. And he's like, I need to get something to drive around up here. So searching the old classified ads, you know, old school style in the paper every, every morning, he found a, an old flat fender Jeep for 600 bucks and went and bought it. And he worked on it and worked on it and worked on it for like a year. And he was getting it ready to take up there. And he's like, this thing's a pile. So he's like, I don't want to fix this thing. Because uh, it was an actual, it was an MB. It was a World War II one. So it had the weaker transmission and stuff. And he's like, you know what? Someone will want to restore this thing. I'm going to sell it. So he sold it and bought another one, a civilian model, and didn't do anything to it. Towed it up there, and that's what I learned to drive on. It had no brakes. Those old Jeeps have non-synchro transmissions. Grinder, grinder. Yeah. So I think I was eight when I drove that thing the first time. You know, they have a max speed of almost nothing if they're in low range, which that's all he would let me drive around in. So he had that one for, I don't know, close to 20 years. And he's like, I want to get a nicer Jeep. And so he ended up finding one. He searched and searched, found one. So then he sold our old Jeep to our neighbor, And it started like our own little flat fender club up there. And soon soon there was like four or five neighbors that all had them. So we'd go on little flat fender cruises out through the forest. And then he got another better Jeep. And then there was a big fire in Arizona and it actually burned down our um, our barn, barnyard, lean-to. Basically, it burned everything but the cabin we ended up building up there. And, you know, we lost quads, motorcycles, that Jeep, his old Chevy was up there cause he was going to fix it. And, um, so all that was junk. And he, he was pretty sad about that because the GP had had like 60,000 original miles. It was cherry garage kept its entire life. So he's like, I'm never going to find one like that. I'm never going to find one. Well, back in Phoenix, a guy around in the next street ended up having one for sale and he's like, I ain't going to go buy it. And my mom's like, just go buy another Jeep. Stop your crying. And, uh, so he ended up buying it and he took it up there, drove it around for a couple years, but it was one that, you know, had sat for like 20 or 30 years. So every single thing on it that held or passed a fluid leaked. So I ended up stealing it from him. And I said, when I bring this thing back, it's not going to leak. And I ended up tearing it down to, to the frame and doing a complete frame up. It wasn't like a restoration. I just basically rebuilt everything mechanically made it look nice, put fresh paint on it. I mean, I didn't fix the. I just fixed any rust in the body, didn't smooth it out, nothing. Just make it look nice from 50 feet and, and here you go. And, uh, that was a couple of four or five years ago, took it back up to him. If you made it too nice, he'd never drive it. No, he's not afraid to scratch it. <laughs> Cause that's what up there. It's all pine trees and stuff. And he finds these old logging roads that have been abandoned for 40, 50 years. And the only thing that you can fit down them is a Willie's Jeep, because they're all overgrown. We actually, uh, Brian and Bailey came up there, uh, one weekend in their Jeep JL, which he's got, you know, forties and Curry seventies. And it's super wide. And my dad starts turning down some of these trails and I'm like, Hey, he's not going to fit. And he's like, Oh yeah. You know, he like forgets because every time I go up there, I, I try to take mine and cause I have one and go cruise around with him."
1: You mentioned earlier, you know, the neighbors all started getting and You had a little flat fender club, but now you've kind of resurrected. You kind of have a flat fender club going now because you've convinced a handful of people to, uh, to also get in and, uh, and, and go out with you guys.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I was mentioning on that, that weekend that Bailey and Brian came up in their, in their new Jeep, I was trying to tell Brian, Hey, you got to get one of these. They're so much fun. And he's like, no way that those things are piles. I I would never want one, you know? And I was like, riding it, riding it. And he rode in it. And I was like, you want to drive it? And he's like, all right. And then the very, I don't even think he made it home and he was already searching for one. That's hilarious. He's like, he's like these things are so much fun i can't he goes i'm actually shocked at how well they ride it's just because they're so small they have no wheelbase they're not wide at all and you just kind of bebop along through the forest trails and just have a good time you know and uh brian's dad art ended up wanting one too, after seeing the fun. And, uh, there's a whole bunch of their neighbors up there in in, uh, the Southeast Valley, they've got, I don't know, 30 or 40 of them by them up there now. That's hilarious.
1: I've seen you guys doing a, uh, just flat fender rallies and you guys are cruising around no roll cage. No. And, 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 and like I said, you're six foot one, you're a big dude. Brian is also a very big dude. So both of you two t- kind of like uh, big dudes in a little car.
0: They're very small. I wouldn't want to be any taller and drive one, I can tell you that. I, I already cheated, and I put a uh, a uh, military column in mine to make the steering wheel further away because your arms are up in your chest otherwise. Just doing a little work to them here and there, and there there's little differences between them. that get you more leg room or not. And, and they're cheaper than a Razor, right? Yeah, well... <laughs> they can be. They can yeah. be. Right? I mean, you can... Yeah, you're supposed to – this is where I say I hope my wife doesn't listen to this, right? <laughs> I mean, Brian's got a really nice one.
1: We are talking about – and I might not drop last names yeah. before. Brian Crofts, Brian is an ultra four racer as well. He's currently engaged to Bailey Campbell. And like I said, we're talking to Ryan Miller who's now driving you know, Bailey's car. But, so you can see how the family is always all pretty tight and hanging out and the team's pretty tight and hanging out.
0: Yep, yep. Yeah, he wanted one that was very clean, low miles. So he searched for one and found it. And I ended up helping him uh, build axles, transmission, transfer case. And when I say build, I mean we rebuilt the stock ones. And I showed him all the little tricks that I do to them. Of course, we put some cheater stuff in our axles like lockers. (laughs) You know, just so they're a little bit better they're very light surprisingly they weigh nothing like 22 2300 pounds when they're stock um, and that's pretty much what we're keeping them as stock so
1: well I've seen those videos and you know and it's a video it's a parade video of like the MB Jeep rolling down the parade and like the guys jump off and like they take it apart carry the like axles out wheels out engine out and then they carry it 50 feet and put it right back together and then they all jump back in it and they roll another block and yeah. they take it apart again. Now uh, it's all set up with like quick disconnect stuff. It's, yeah, yeah. it's obviously set up
0: for the parade, but, but they're very easy to work on. Like there's nothing to them, they're super simple. You know, old school carburetor, gravity feed fuel line to a mechanical fuel pump. I mean, dude, it's, it doesn't get any simpler. So, as we move away from
1: talking about flat fenders, I'm kind of going to blur some lines here between talking about your wife, Kaylee, and, uh, and some of the stuff you guys like to do together and flat fenders. But one of the things you like to do when you're not racing and flat fendering is, uh, I got this right. You guys, I know you all love exploring, but you have a penchant for finding out
0: hunting, hunting old ghost towns, old mining towns. Yeah. So we like anything. We like going out and exploring all the time. And there's a bunch of places around Tucson here. I mean, there's Southern Arizona's like big, big, big turn of the century mining, you know, 1900. So there's a lot of stuff, but uh, this year, the beginning of this year when all the COVID stuff went down and all the businesses shut and you can't go out to, you know, eat and, you know, this little small town, that place is closed. Okay. And so that's the stuff we used to go do well, it was all those. Well, I like reading uh old Arizona Highways magazines and stuff, you know, just history of Arizona and all the random places you can go see if you're lost. And one of their specials that I bought the book was old mining towns and go you know, ghost towns. And there's hundreds. And So what we did is we'd pick some in an area and we'd take off Saturday at like five in the morning and drive her car, which her car's a, an Audi Q7 all wheel drive. So it's, it's nice to drive down the road, but it's also all wheel drive. And we just drive out down these dirt roads and end up somewhere that, you know, that car probably shouldn't be. And we'd, uh, we'd just go find, you know, 10, 15 ghost towns in a day. And we come back home. And the next weekend we do it again. And so we, her car got, you know, a couple hundred miles each weekend of just dirt road driving and just going out and exploring and seeing what's out in the middle of nowhere, where you got to be lost to find it.
1: I love that about you guys. Uh, as we start talking about Kaylee here in a second is you guys, every time I talk to you, it's like, man, I'm, I can't do something this weekend. I'm we're in Glamis. Hey, I can't do something next weekend. We're going to be in Johnson Valley pre-running and testing and getting ready for rebel and oh we can't go that weekend because we're going to be doing this yeah and it's you guys are go 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 every weekend and it's outdoors off-road related and y'all are just living it breathing it on a regular basis
0: yep yep that's that's been the (laughs) even though you know a lot of stuff hasn't been going on that's what we've been doing just
1: constantly So I've mentioned her name. You are married to this wonderful
0: woman, Kaylee. How did y'all meet? Well, it's interesting. We actually met probably 16 or 17 years ago, I'd say. I was with a bunch of guys, that we started an off-road club at U of A. And they said, we need to start a club, so that way we have buddies to come get us unstuck from somewhere. Or come help us get our broken rig out of somewhere, right? And so we started an off-road club. Is this pre-Undertakers? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, we started that off-road club. And then for homecoming at the school, they always team, you know, a fraternity with a sorority for a homecoming float, whatever. Well, they try to team clubs with other clubs. Well, we're an off-road club. So naturally, there's a lot of guys. Well, they teamed us with the nursing club, obviously, mostly girls. And it sounds sister, like a win. Yeah. Her sister was in the nursing club because uh, she's got actually two sisters that are nurses. And so she would always come hang out with her sisters with the off-road club because she liked off-roading. But then she would just hang out, whatever. We just knew each other. She ended up going to grad school in Austin and then she moved back. And she lived here for a while. And then we just randomly met. And one day it in downtown Tucson getting lunch, just her, and started talking, whatever. And she's like, Hey, you know, I really want to, you know, I've been working a lot. I've got a bunch of money because I've worked a bunch of overtime and I, I want to buy a Jeep and go off-roading again. Cause that was a lot of fun. She's like, um, will you go look at one with me? Because I found one. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I went to her, with her to go look at it. And, and she's like, well, do you think I should get it? And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's a good deal. Yeah. She's like, okay. So she ended up buying it. And then we ended up hanging out more and then we ended up dating and now we're married. <laughs>
1: that's,
0: so, so That's the short
1: story. Well, so yeah, you already kind of answered some of my questions about that because I was, uh, my questions were, was she already into off-roading somehow, some way, or had you converted her? Yeah. And as we start, cause I do want to talk about her. What she does is absolutely amazing. She, she likes to do off-road rallies, especially the rebel, which is Emily Miller's baby. And at this point i've got I'm gonna just throw the ball into your court to describe what rebel is because I'm totally enamored with what Emily Miller has going Emily Miller another Miller that you're not related to <laughs> but'll we talk about yeah so so there you and I are and, and let me back this up so Kaylee's won this rally twice she's won it she's twice won it twice she's
0: finished third another time
1: and and as you're going to describe it here in depth, because I, you explained it to me at KOH this past year, we're standing at a smudge pot late. I don't know. I don't think it was midnight, but it was definitely late. We, we were drinking beers. I was with Miles Hasselkiss. We came over to see you, Shannon, Bay. you know, just everybody in y'all's crew. I mean, and you and I stood outside by the smudge pot talking, and somehow we started talking about Rebel. And that led me to, I'd met Emily Miller that day or maybe the day before somewhere like over in the media tent. And then you're, you start telling me about what she does outside of doing what she was doing for King and Hammers. And I went right back the next day. I found her and was like, Emily, I host a podcast called the talent tank. We cover ultra four stuff. I know you're working for ultra four, but I want to talk to you about rebel because what you guys do is just, It floored me. It floored me. What? So it's a women's off-road rally. And now just walk us through some of the crazy stuff you were telling me, like the wheels, like, like, like how many feet and you got to know the rotation and, and navigating Uh, and compasses and, and sextants and no GPS and one spare tire and ladies slashing a tire and they don't have a pit crew to change it. And not only that, they use their spare. They're like stitching up tires
0: on the side of, uh, the road. Yeah. Come on. Give me, give me your elevator pitch on this. They're definitely not your average women. They they are, they're like we were talking about before. They are badasses. They start this rally and there's not many vehicle requirements. Um, you can't have like a race car or anything. It has to be a production vehicle available to the public. You can't have like four link coil over suspension on it and you know, whatever else. It has to be like some sort of bolt on suspension if you lift it. You can't have bigger than 35 inch tires. So you can't, you know, put 37s or 40s or anything like that on it. And they start usually up by Tahoe and they usually end in Glamis. So that's quite, that's pretty much the entire state line of California down through Nevada and then even south further all the way to the border of Mexico, except for they do it on dirt. And they do it for eight days and they camp in a tent. And what you bring with you is what you have. If you need tools or you know your car needs this spare, you have to bring it. Changing a tire, that's you. If you want to bring two spares, you can bring two spares, but you also have no GPS, no electronic navigation, anything. Anything that has GPS on it, you can't have with you. You can't have your phone, your laptop, nothing. They're using a map, and a compass and going approximately, I have to say this in kilometers because that's the other thing is Emily sets it up in kilometers to make it more difficult. I
1: think. Yeah. As you, <laughs> de- as so, you
0: described her, I'm like, this woman is evil yeah. and awesome. So they go like 2000 kilometers on dirt with a map and compass and find like 200 or 250 checkpoints along the way in eight days. And as you
1: described the checkpoints, some of them are, obvious. They're 15 feet tall.
0: You can see them from a mile away. And some of them are. It's like a ski, like ski slopes. So you have green, blue, and black. Green are the easy ones. Uh, There's course workers and big green flags, and you know, you're there. Okay. The blue checkpoints are, they usually just put a flag there. There's no course worker or anything, but she also puts out trick blues to make sure that you know where you are. So if you didn't go 0.2 kilometers far enough then you didn't get the right blue because there could be a blue there and another one around the corner and then the blacks are they're nothing there's nothing that marks them it is a just point in in space somewhere out on out on earth and she scores the blacks in range rings like a target. So the closer you are to the bullseye, the more points you get. So how do you verify those? So what they have is they have a tracker on the vehicle that people at home can follow where they're going. And you can see the checkpoints on the map. So you can see if they're going to it or not, or if they're close or not, and you can zoom way in or zoom way out. And uh, you can follow your favorite team, whatever. And you also have a second tracker that they use, that they push a button on to score each checkpoint. So every time they push the button, it scores that checkpoint. Now, if they skip a checkpoint and go to another one and they push the button, you can't go back and get a previous one. But they know where you're at, you know, and which one you're trying to score or if you scored it or not. But that's how, so when you push the button, it logs that position in the tracker and then sends it, you know, via the satellite back to their scoring. And then they instant within five, 10 minutes, they have the score posted.
1: So you would describe to me something like knowing like what the diameter of your rolling attire is. Yeah.
0: It, so the accuracy that they're talking about is very exact. Um, whenever you're plotting your directions whether it's to, to a green, a blue, or a black. So, a lot of newer vehicles have you know, ABS sensors, so they have tone rings, so it can count that. Older vehicles, we had originally built her a, a TJ, which was the Jeep that she had bought when we first met again. So that's an older vehicle. Um, we actually put a magnetic sensor on the wheel or on the backing plate of the axle in the rear, so it would actually count each lug stud as it went by. So. It count five pulses for one rotation of the tire. So the only uh, electronic device, I guess you could say that is allowed is you're allowed a TerraTrip type device like rally computers. They make some with GPS, but those aren't allowed. But it calculates distance in hundreds of a mile or a kilometer, not tenths like your odometer. So these girls will plot a point And then they'll plot the next point. They'll get to the first one and then they'll say, okay, we need to drive 4.39 kilometers to the next checkpoint. 4.39. Okay. And they'll drive and that thing will say 4.39. Boom. We're here. You know, and they're doing it based off
1: a tone ring or
0: something like that. They get that exact. So when you, when you're talking hundreds of a kilometer, you're talking 10 meters, which is 33.3 feet your odometer is in, let's say you can't push a button and change it to kilometers like most of these newer vehicles. A 10th of a mile is 528 feet. Your accuracy is almost 20 times, Yeah. you know? So that's, yeah, They're they're very precise and you have to make sure you get the right checkpoint. So the same checkpoint isn't for everybody. There's three different groups. So some days they could all have the same checkpoints, And other days they have three different checkpoints for the three different groups. And some days they have two groups get the same checkpoint and one group gets a different set because she doesn't want people following,
1: you know? Oh, she's like I said, ruthless, (laughs) ruthless, just (laughs) diabolic Emily Miller. I hope you hear this. She's making
0: them be good navigators.
1: Oh, absolutely. And like I said, all these women, so there's two of them in a car.
0: They're attached at the hip for eight days. They are tight. Yep. Before they leave base camp, they have to, you know, if it's a day that they're not staying at base camp again, if it is, they leave all their camping gear, but they have to pack up their camping gear. They have to plot all their points, eat breakfast, load everything in the car, take off from the start line. And then from there, from that point, once they're done with all that, which is a couple hours, they have 10 to 12 hours to collect all these checkpoints for the day. And then they get back to another base camp or the same one. Eat dinner, set up their tent, go to bed, do it all over again for eight days straight. So impressive!
1: So impressive! I yeah, as you were telling me this, I I mean I'm I think my jaw was just fully on the ground at, 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 there on Means Dry Lake, going, no way! And then I'm also visualizing my wife doing this, and I'm like, <laughs> no way! <laughs> She'd be yeah. absolutely never no on any God's green earth, but your wife Kaylee does. And she's won it twice. Yep. That's uh, and now so you guys were just out in Johnson Valley a few weeks ago or a week before Moab, uh, doing some testing and getting ready for rebel. Cause rebel is coming up here pretty quickly, right?
0: Yeah. We're, we're leaving next weekend. There you so, go. Or when this airs, it'll be this, the end of this week. <laughs> so
1: now you have developed a pretty good relationship with Emily Miller with rebel over, rules and regulations and logistics and does she dread when she sees your number pop up on her phone
0: no no she actually she probably calls me more than i call her i've actually taken a lot of the me and uh, another guy here i should say he's in phoenix his wife does the rebel too and there's probably a group of i don't know six to eight of them you know around around the area and we'll go set up practice courses for them and we'll do the same same stuff she does we'll give them trick checkpoints fake ones you know make them really think about what they're doing and take them out and that's you know that group there's a couple of them from southern california that actually drive out just just for that just for the day to hang out with them and go practice but yeah we were in johnson Valley a couple it was a couple of weeks ago two three weeks ago it, i don't know if it was actually that long but it feels that long ago and we actually went to Glamis too it was very very hot I've been to Johnson Valley not during KOH you know not this time of year but it was uh it was two days in a row of 117 and we were like yep not we're we're leaving (laughs) sounds miserable yeah we're just happy uh we actually just got her a new rally jeep for this year we we're making sure that it doesn't heat when you leave the AC blasting in 120 degree weather in the sand. So <laughs> that's something good to know, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you got to make sure because uh I mean the the 99 TJ we had built her it was built specifically for that rally and it it killed it. And, you know, cuz I built I built something that's comfortable to drive, bulletproof, and that had a spare for literally everything. Um, So that way they were 100% self-sufficient and it did its job and they won, but it just, you know, as things progress and change last year, I guess uh, she didn't do it because she had just got a a new career uh, going. So she took a year off. And they had a really long first day, I guess. It was like eight or nine hours on the highway. And she's like, my TJ is not built to drive eight or nine hours on the highway. It's built to drive in dirt all day long. And so, you know, cruising at 50 in dirt is a whole other thing than cruising 80 down a highway. Right. And that thing was built like with a top speed of like 65 in mind. So it's like way over geared, you know, so that way it doesn't struggle at anything ever. And it's just... It wasn't right anymore, you know?
1: The rally had moved around. Yeah. It had been changed up. Hey, that, that, just that happens, the,
0: evolution. Yeah, so we got a, a new Jeep, and we've been working on it, and there's still a few things to do, and we got about 10 days before we leave, so.
1: You ready? She's ready? And now who's her co-driver, too? Her
0: teammate's Tara Lynn Pederet That's right. I probably said it wrong. <laughs> I can't ever pronounce it right. But everybody knows Tara Lynn. Yeah. Tara out of, uh, well, she lives in St. George, I think right now, but she used to live in Moab. She's just, just like my wife. She's wants to go out and play outdoors all the time. She has her own little Toyota buggy that she drives around and she fixes it, modifies it herself, built it herself. So that's something else.
1: As I'm looking forward to putting together this episode, I, I have to do one thing, right? One of the check boxes on my list is a, a headshot. So usually, you know, I go stock through your Facebook and your Instagram, and I find a good, a good picture of you. And, uh, and if I don't, then I call my good buddy, Alan Johnson, adults for four, Mr. Dusty gnome over there. And he usually has a good one for me. And, but I didn't find one for you, but what I did find was you and your wife have a penchant And I don't know if this is just because it only shows up on Facebook, but you guys have a lot
0: of ugly sweaters. She has an ugly sweater. We actually have an entire closet in our house dedicated to ugly sweaters. Even better. (laughs) She, she likes throwing an ugly sweater party every, every Christmas uh, for all of our friends and stuff. But yeah, one bedroom that we don't use has a, has the closet and it is full of ugly sweaters.
1: No, it was truly ridiculous, and anyone that you know, they'll see the links to Ryan to Ryan Miller's uh, Facebook page here uh, with the episode. But I give you uh, examples of his uh, his photos, and it's like way too many ugly sweaters. Like uh, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, oh well, that was Christmas. And then you keep scrolling, you like, well, that's a different ugly sweater. And then you scroll over like more ugly sweaters, and then more ugly sweaters. I was like, okay, yeah. I've seen enough. I've got to write this down. I got to ask you about it. That's good. That's good. It's like uh, yeah. the, the tribe guys, uh, like Adam Shear and company, they have boxes of wigs, wigs, and yeah. yeah, and they and they throw wig out parties. They wig out, you know, just bring out the, the box of wigs. I don't know how that works with COVID though. I mean, you still wear your mask, but then you're just swapping wigs.
0: <laughs> I don't. I don't think that applies. I don't know, right?
1: <laughs> fireball kills it. Uh, that, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's why fireball kills it. Those guys in Fireball. <laughs> So there you are, you graduate from University of Arizona, you're a wildcat, you have your degree in engineering. Today, you work for a company doing like HVAC systems, but you do
0: all like the computer and automation stuff. Walk me through that. Who do you work for now? It's a company called Advanced Controls. I do a lot of troubleshooting stuff, but I do a lot of uh, from from scratch programming of large, large, large commercial AC units. These aren't like your house, you know, these are water cooled big. So you have giant central plants with chillers. I program those from, from scratch, all automated, you know, alarming, you know, redundancy switching, lots of relays, lots of sensors. And so I, I messed with those all day long. And we're talking buildings like large office buildings,
1: schools, governmental buildings, the airports. Oh, wow. And with that, I mean, you handle everything. It's just not what's on the wall when somebody walks to the thermostat. That's like the front end interface. It's everything that that front end interface then
0: runs. Yeah. Yeah. The background behind them is, is huge. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff nowadays is all, you know, trying to be energy savings. So I actually do a lot of programming of systems that are either stuff that has been done recently or a long time ago and reprogram them to still do what they do now, but make them more energy efficient.
1: So is that shutting them off at nighttime on certain stuff or starting them up up at different times? Like
0: what are kind kind of some of the nuances? You can set back temperatures, you know, whenever the building's less occupied. Buildings have load from, you know, outside air temperature, computers, people, lighting. Like that's the big ones. If you can you know, minimize some of that stuff at certain hours, you can change the way that all the equipment in the background runs and make it run, you know, not as hard. And therefore it uses less, it, you know, overall it uses less electricity is what it comes down to. But, you know, if, if you don't need, you know, a hundred gallons of 44 degree water flowing through a unit to cool it and you only need 90, over the course of hours and hours and hours, that 10 gallons adds up. And then you go, well, maybe we don't need 40 degree water. Maybe we need 50 degree water. And you, you know, and I've actually, I've done, I've done a lot of that, and it's surprising. People would be shocked. Um, a lot of times, the bill to reprogram it has already paid for itself before I'm done. Oh wow! In energy savings. Well, I'll overall you, for, for a large building,
1: the guy that programmed the one for my office, that guy sucks. It's, I got to wear a sweater in the summertime. And then one of to sit there and like tank top and a uh, speedo in the winter. It, it, yeah. it may maybe 30 See, degrees it's outside. More energy but it's, efficient. Yeah. It's, it's complete disaster. Yeah, exactly. Terrible, terrible, terrible. How long have you done that? Full time for about 14 years. Wow. Uh, that's pretty cool. I always, I always get a kick out of what people do for a living and how they yeah. end up into it and, and then what they're good at and how their mind works. And so when I start talking to you about a uh, rebel and even, even prior to that, prior to that, you know, talking about various things with the Campbell cars and the engineering side of it, and you working with like Matt Taylor and, and you know, Matt has done all the, the design work, the CAD work, but he's also just a really handy wrench in the Campbell stable. And as are you, you realize really quick, you're, not a mechanic, like you're way more than that. Like your, your, your mind is going a million miles a minute over all the nuances, not just where the 10 millimeter might be.
0: Yeah. 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 We, uh, I mean, just with what I do at work, it's very technical and some of that applies, you know, to racing. Some of it doesn't, but you know, just figuring out why, why something did this, why did that? I know when you, when they had that race in Texas, Couple years ago, the desert race, Waylon's car, I had a cooling fan that wouldn't work on it. And I ended up uh, rewiring it. And Shannon's like, Are you sure that's going to work? And I'm like, It'll be fine. But when we get home, we need to make a permanent fix here. Was that Sierra Blanca? Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. That's, a, I mean, all day I deal with relays. That's, I mean, that's the basic thing of it. So, and just this last weekend in Moab, the, the guys in the Nitto trailer were like, we can't lower our our rear deck off the trailer so we can't unload anything and uh, Shannon's like come on Miller we can go figure this out and and we went over there and and we started looking and we're like this doesn't make sense this isn't where the controls are for this and I ended up cutting open a tab that was dated like 2010 so no one had been in there in forever and uh, inside of it was a VFD which is a variable frequency drive for electric motors and I, I deal with those all day long too so I'm like oh okay this is right up my alley and but it wasn't a product I was familiar with so So I busted out the book and I'm looking at it and I'm like, this doesn't make sense because they say it goes up and down. So there has to be something to reverse this motor. And there was one relay in there and I'm like, Hmm, I wonder if that relay is it ended up being that they drove down that, that bumpy road into area BFE and the relay actually stuck where it would only go down. It wouldn't go up. Oh dang! So it just needed to just toggled once. And they they just needed a Miller. I didn't even really do anything. So, you know, it's just one of those, you know,
1: little nuances. So, man, the early off-roading years for you, I'm going to back it back up a little bit, but, you know, the Willis Jeeps, you and your sister, you know, quads and motorcycles. What was your first truck when you got your license?
0: Well, I had my first truck before I had a license. As you should. As you should. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my first vehicle, my dad actually got it, but I was 13 and it ended up being mine. It was a 71 Chevy Suburban four-wheel drive. Oh, big boat. Yeah. So that's what I ended up driving at first. When I turned 16, I was like, I want a truck. I want another truck. So I ended up buying a member. I said I was into the 67 to 72 Chevys. I bought a uh, 68 Chevy CST two-wheel drive, and I built that thing as like a little street truck. And then I had the 71 Suburban was like the off-road vehicle. The, the Suburban was ugly. And it was f- actually for one homecoming with the Off-Road Club. It was a MASH theme. And one of the guys had a, a Willie's Jeep. So we put it on a trailer and they're like, hey, can we paint your truck all of drab? And I was like, sure, because it was my Suburban and I didn't care. So we painted the whole truck all of drab and it stayed all of drab forever. But that was my, it was on 37s and one tons and locked. And that was like my first, my off road vehicle, you know?
1: And is, is that what you had when you kind of started getting into Pirate 404?
0: That and I had, I probably had my what would end up being my buggy, which was my Jeep YJ, um, as well.
1: And then, so that's yeah, that I, you know exactly where I'm going, how I'm getting into it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you end up that thing, you carve it up, this uh, this YJ, it ends up being your buggy, and then that's kind of about where I remember kind of knowing who the Ryan Miller was somebody and that was around and that centered around, uh, the Arizona undertakers club.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I, when I got that Jeep, I built it into a, a buggy and I got an Arizona undertakers and, and y'all just hit amazing. I mean,
1: I, I don't like cussing on here, but you guys hit just sh- amazing shit. I mean, you see videos of the vertical climbs that you guys are doing and the cracks and like, no way somebody took something up that. Yep. Arizona undertakers, all of them. Yeah. And they did it in reverse.
0: You know, (laughs) some of the stuff these guys are doing now, because I've, I haven't had a buggy for four years now, but I still go out and I, you know, go wheeling with them or help scout some new trails. I've steered them to a couple that I've found and they've went and ran them. And people are just like, what are these? And they're all, you know, rear steer 42s and 43s. And, you know, there's a couple guys with red dot cars And just making waterfalls their bitch. Yeah. It's it's funny because uh, going back to, you know, KOH and smack talking on Pirate and stuff, uh, the backdoor shootout, when that first came out, I was like, oh, this is our jam, you know? And I had my buggy, and I'd been to KOH, and that thing, we would do laps every night on backdoor, five, ten times, because – Our trails here, you know, every part in the country is different. So you can't say, you know, our trails are the hardest trails. It's all just different. Um, We've had guys from San Hollow come down here and wheel and their wheelbases are like 10 inches shorter than ours. So they struggle on the stuff that we make it easily up. And then you take our stuff to San Hollow and it doesn't work as good as theirs. You know, you build your stuff to your local. You do. Yeah. We have trails that have six or seven back doors on one trail. So, you know, going up back door is like, oh, okay, we'll just go up back door. Well, you know, we got on pirate and we're talking smack. And some of the guys were like new, new guys, or they weren't as seasoned at that stuff, or they'd never been to KOH before. So they weren't sure how you're supposed to hit back door. And a lot of them didn't even pre-run it, nothing. And I was the only one that made it up. Out of the And I was like, you guys are pathetic. So then there was a bunch of guys from Oregon and, you know, I had seen them on the Hill and we talked all week every night when we'd go up there and just do laps. And, you know, it was fun. You know, they deservingly uh, talked a bunch of smack about us because none, none of those guys could get up it. So.
1: Yeah. I remember like this is harking way back to an old guy, Nolan Grogan, not, not that he's old. He's only a couple years older than me, but, uh, but he's an old school wheeler, Nolan's thing was always like, if you can't get past the the first rock, you know, and the, the trail, like basically, if you can't get past the gatekeeper, you can't do the trail. So yeah, if you can't get up back door, you don't deserve to do. And there's nothing behind back behind back door, you know. Once you get over it, uh, yeah. But but that's kind of his deal. Is like it,
0: there's the whole pressure thing too. You know, it's one thing to do it on when you're trail wheeling, and it's another when the spotlight's on you. Which there's there's a couple two of those guys. I had never seen them not make it on the first shot and they did not make it. And I'm like, and then, you know, the next night we'd go out there and they'd go right up again. (laughs) That's how it works, right? Well, I mean, they had to put a helmet on, right? So as you know, big rich always says things change when you have to put a helmet on and you got to dodge cones. Oh, you see, you see things
1: differently. And, And there's a little bit of more peer peer pressure. Or yeah. certainly
0: self-pressure. And by that point, I'd already, you know, raced, raced my buggy a few times. So driving with the helmet on, that doesn't bother me any. <laughs> so, yeah. So you raced that, you end up racing that car in 4,800, right? I actually didn't race in, not that well, not in 4,800 for ultra four, but you raced in dirt, it right? Uh, they would lump, uh, what they called unlimited trail class, which was, it's basically 4,800 ultra four rules but with no tire limit. So you could run 40s or 42s or 43s or whatever the hell you wanted. Where 4,800 cars, their only limit is single shock 37s. Well, the unlimited trail class was single shock, whatever the hell else you want.
1: And so you ran that for a while and they're, they're right. And you did damn well.
0: Like I'm I racing very well. When I first, first raced my first race and I didn't know what to expect. I was on leaf springs still. This was in the first year of Dirt Riot. It was just my old clapped out leaf spring buggy. And I was like, well, we'll try it and see what happens. I didn't race the first race of the season because it was like a desert race, but they were racing in Moab. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll go race in Moab. I love trail wheeling in Moab. I love Varia area BFE. That's where the race is. Okay. I ended up winning the race with a broken leaf spring by like 15 minutes. And I was like, Hmm, okay, well, I guess I got to show up to the next race if I won that one. And I ended up winning 10 or 11 races in a row into the following season as well. And this was in the beginning. So there wasn't, you know, that many guys racing and it was pretty much 4,800 cars weren't even a thing at the time. So it was just guys and trail rigs. And then it eventually got into the 4800 class evolved in Ultra 4 and so those guys got lumped into racing with us in Dirt Riot, you know, similar rules. That's, you know, it is same car so I ended up, you know, racing against a lot of guys that raced 4800 and still race 4800, but yeah, won a com- won a couple national championships, quite a few uh, series championships and like I was telling you about, you know, racing with Bailey, I think there was never a race. I think I entered like thirty-five or forty races over the course of five seasons, and I never did not finish one.
1: That's insane.
0: Good, good prep, right? Yeah, I, I always made sure uh, the car was was prepped um, very very well, even though it was a pile, as I called it. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was a stock Jeep. 2.5 liter, four cylinder that makes 120 horsepower. And you know, the car I just raced last weekend almost makes that in one cylinder. So, yeah. Right. No, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> yeah. Um, but perspective. Yeah. When I started racing that thing, you know, like I said, I was a broken on, you know, I, I broke a leaf spring every race. I raced it the first season and I ended up getting approached by uh Brian Turner who at the time worked at ADS and they were like, Hey, you know, we think we want to work with you on something, you know, cause you have a, a buggy that works, has no power, but you know, we could showcase what good suspension does, you know? And so we ended up modifying it after the first season. And I came out the second season with an untested rig that I literally loaded on the trailer. It was quite, quite the, the feat to get it done. Just gathering parts on time, you know, from everybody and my buddies helped me get it done. It was like 10.30 p.m. Arizona time and Utah times an hour after us. So it was 11.30. And the race was the following morning at 8 a.m. in Moab. And I loaded it on the trailer eight and a half hours before the race started and did well over the speed limit all the way there through the middle of the night after not sleeping for three days trying to finish this thing. And unloaded it off the trailer and debuted it and smoked it nice it just worked right out of the box so
1: what year was that that was 20 like 7 12 oh later i was thinking this earlier yeah that's uh i
0: think they're right it was 2011 when they started so it was the second second season
1: where in there did you start running around with uh the campbell crew i mean how did that intro happen
0: I went to Koh for the first time at two on 2009, and that was when Shannon first had his first IFS car. And um, I had Undertaker's buddies knew him. I didn't live in Phoenix, so I didn't. I knew who he was, and you know we hung out around the pit and and you know said hey and whatever. But I wasn't part of the pit crew or anything. He was just hanging out. 2010, I actually helped him pit at the Hammers a little bit. You know, just like a, an extra hand. Like, hey, you know, you want to help us pit where we need some pit guys. Okay. And then after that, shortly after KOH, uh, Shannon wanted to go out trail wheeling. Okay. We'll go to one of our spots. And so we took him out there in what uh, was their old two-seat car that uh, Nick and Rob McKinney had actually raced at KOH that year. It was just a simple little two-seat rock buggy. Solid axles. Solid axle radiator behind the seats. Curry 60s, 40s with bypass air shocks, I think, on it. Yep. So he brought Bailey and Wayland out and put them in that. And Shannon rode with whoever had an open seat at the time. You know, he was just jumping in random buggies. And I was, I kind of planned the trip. So I was leading the, that trip on all the trails. And I think I drove all the stuff. There's a couple obstacles uh, where we were that, you know, it's hit or miss whether you have to winch them. And I was helping spot, you know, anyone that wanted a spot. Normally we just let each other flail and laugh at each other when we're trail wheeling. And, uh, but when the kids got up, you know, Shannon would say, Hey, uh, you know, just listen to him. He'll tell you what to do. And I'd spot him up. And he actually made Bailey drive and Waylon sit in the passenger seat. And that went for a whole day and three quarter, I'd say. And Bailey had no problem driving everything. And then, we got to one obstacle. It was the last obstacle, last trail, last day of the weekend, and she couldn't get it up there. And I'm telling her exactly, I'm like, you have to do this. You have to do this. Once it gets to that point, you got to know, know when to go. And she, and she just couldn't get it. And Waylon was sitting there absorbing everything I was saying and knowing exactly what she was doing wrong. And Shannon said, all right, let brother drive. And Waylon jumped in the seat and one-shotted it. And I think that, that made her angry. Because, you know, he he was watching exactly what, what she was missing from the passenger side, which that was the important thing on that obstacle, whatever. But then that next week, one of, the, one of the Undertaker's buddies that, you know, had known Shannon and had pitted for him at KOH and everything and had asked me if I wanted to help, whatever, goes, hey, um, Shannon wants your number. He wants to call you. Okay. And he called me and he said, hey, you know, uh, you're really good at spotting out there on those trails. We need a spotter for we rock, you know, would you do that? And I said, sure. Well, the next event was in Tucson. So I didn't have to go anywhere. And I actually (laughs) spotted for Nick, not, not for Shannon. And, uh, Nick and I ended up, uh, winning, I think three of the four events that season and winning the the championship too. And then from there, Shannon's like, Hey, you want to go desert racing with us? So we, you know, Vegas to Reno and, you know, uh, Parker and, and, you know, but, at, but at the same time throughout that season, Hey, you want to go ultra four racing with us? And sure. And then it just event, you know, I ended up, you know, he's like, just with, I don't know, I guess the way I think you guys jive being like the strategist for this is where we're going to pit for this for fuel. And this is what we need at this pit. And this is what we need to do and whatever. Yeah. So that's how that all started. And then once Waylon got old enough to race, he's like, Hey, uh, I want to build him a two seat car. Let's build him a two seat car and, uh, you co-drive for him. Okay. So done.
1: Yeah. (laughs) All right. And I've sat in on a fair number of those strategy conversations, those strategy meetings in the Campbell trailer. And, you know, it's all sitting around and writing on the kind of the whiteboard, like where the fuel is, what the game plan is what the intel is on what other teams are doing, when they're going to pit, what their strategies look like, what it looks like for the three car, the five car, the 35 car, and kind of how that kind of is going to set up. And you are, you're kind of the crew chief on that. You're kind of like the lead strategist and in there, and you've got, you know, Matt Taylor feeding you data, but then you've got Shannon, Whalen, and Bailey, you know, they're in and they're, yep, that's what we're going to do. Or, well, let's look at this. And then you show them the pitfalls of what that looks like. And so, you know, massively impressive. It's like you can tell that, you know, Miller sits down and does all this homework, you know, leading into the event. And everyone else kind of does theirs too. But then you, when you guys sit down and put pen to paper what it looks like, it's uh, you can tell that yeah. that family and that team and that race organization, that race company, you are a, 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 a pillar within inside that
0: we put we definitely put a lot of time into our our you know i mean KOH is it's the big race right we put a lot of time into uh what we are going to do you know as support pit whatever on um, out there for the whole week not just on race day and it's multiple races
1: yeah because you guys run UTV
0: yes the UTVs adds a whole, has a whole, whole nother ball game to it. in so. which
1: you can tell us exactly, you know, Shannon loves the UTVs, doesn't he? He just loves them. Like, he likes the UTVs. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he, he does love his, his big car too. Yeah. As soon as the UTV race is over, he's like, get them on the trailer and get them out of here. Yeah,
0: yeah. He loves racing them, but he's like, I'm done with them by that time. I'm 100% with the get them on the trailer and get them out of here because we we don't want any more stuff to work on.
1: (laughs) Doesn't matter how they get on that trailer, just get on that trailer.
0: The pecking order on which one goes on the trailer, or which ones, I should say, are which ones are in the worst condition because we need the rest of them to drive around for the rest of the weekend. That's right. That's that's
1: exactly (laughs) right. And and nobody messes with, with Tammy's general. No, do not touch Tammy's general. Oh, that's, that's like the only, that's like the only rule. Yeah. <laughs> you can lean on it. That's it. Don't think you're going to do anything. I think else. she'll
0: let me drive it, but she might still be mad about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> love her. Oh man. Love her. So yeah. Th- I mean, as we kind of get through this, you, you drove for what you co-drove for Waylon for quite a while. How many years, man? Like two, three.
0: It's hard to say. They I think together. together. Two and a half to yeah. three, because I think it was once Bailey wanted to race, then I got thrown into the car with Bailey, and actually uh, Jason Berger, who co-drives for sure for Shearer in 4400, but he also co-drives for Shannon in UTV. Uh, Berger actually helped; uh, he spotted for Nick and We Rock as well. So, and he's not a stranger to any of this stuff. So uh he actually co-drove with Waylon until Waylon graduated to a single-seat car.
1: And if anyone wants to hear Jason Berger's story, go back to episode 24. I had Berger on. I love that guy. I mean, I, every episode I've done, have been my favorite people. But that one, I, I didn't know anything about him. And holy crap, I I love that guy. What a amazing human that guy is.
0: Yep. It's always fun and interesting on KOH Week because, you know, you have – Jason Shearer and Shannon, the two three-time kings, and they have the same co-driver, but for two different races, so.
1: right. <laughs> fighting over him. As he's, he yeah. is, he's the, as Jason Shearer will say, he's the winningest co-driver in Rock Sports.
0: I believe that.
1: <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I've never fact checked that,
0: but it's I believe probably it. True, <laughs> it, is, it
1: is probably true. But then somewhere in there, you you co-drove for Bailey a little.
0: Yep. Shannon had built her that her solid axle car, and it was supposed to be a trail rig, and he turned it into a race car. So then he ended up building the trail rig after that, which was what we called the thirty pack. Bailey's solid axle car. She had, you know, Waylon actually qualified for Koh in the old. Top truck car that he had built the previous year. And then Shannon's like, well, I guess we better build a real race car because that's not a real race car. So we built him a two-seat IFS. Well, then Bailey came along and he's like, well, we'll build a solid axle. Because his thing was with Waylon, because Waylon had drove that top truck car a couple of times. He's like, you need to learn how to drive with no horsepower and basic stuff. So it was solid axle, stock LS3, nothing fancy. For both of them, actually. But then Whalen got the IFS car, but still stock LS3. Bailey's car was the same way. Co-drove for her in that for a little bit. And then and then he said, Is she out of motor? And I said, Yes. She is driving that car as hard as you possibly can. And the motor is why people are passing her in straightaways. She's it she's out driving them in corners and she's getting passed in straightaways by people she shouldn't be being passed by because she doesn't have enough motor. And that's what he wanted to know. So he ended up putting a a go fast motor in that solid axle car, which was a little bit too much for it because the floor in that car got smoking hot. Um, I'm pretty sure because Terry also co-drove in that car too, after that motor got put in there. And I'm pretty sure both of us have had blisters on the feet, man. One race, uh, Fallon one year when he was co-driving with her, they dropped a rag on the floor and it started on fire. The floor was so hot uh, because uh, it, it, that car wasn't built with that motor in mind, you know, No, not at all. So the exhaust was, was not quite the right size. So it had a little extra heat to it. So comparing you're one of the very
1: few guys out in the world that have, have ridden with both of these two Waylon and Bailey them being siblings growing up together in the same house under the same, you know, tutelage. What is the difference compare the two?
0: Well, I was just thinking about this before even Moab, you know, uh, going back to KOH this year with Bailey. I think it's the difference is, is now that Bailey is Waylon's age when I kind of didn't co-drive for him anymore. Cause I know Berger only, jumped in that two-seater a couple times, and then he had Shannon's old car. But I think it's just that now that Bailey's pretty much the age Whalen was when he kind of, you know, came out and started putting his car on the podium and getting a couple wins, I feel like that's where Bailey's at now. You know, before, you know, if you compared same to same at the same time, you know, two years ago, you know, Bailey was a little bit more held back and she was a little more... I I don't know if this is the right word, but timid in the rocks per se, which, you know, that's something you have to learn. Uh, Some people learn it fast, some people learn it slow, but growing up around rocks for the both of them, they obviously get it. It's just how fast they're able to go in the rocks and keep it smooth. I think that's been the biggest difference with her over the years at KOH is you know she gets the desert she she bombs the desert no problem but when you get in the rocks i felt like you know the previous years that's where she gave up some of her time but i didn't feel that way this year uh, she,
1: she seemed very smooth in 2020
0: yes that's why i say you know comparing it to wayland three or four years ago it's a, like the same now you know
1: that's pretty cool that yeah as you, you, is you <laughs> it's like timing right you know, yeah. know, <laughs> on corrected time, they're, they're, they're even, right? Yes. Yes. You know, exactly. corrected time. I, I love yeah. it. No. So there's a really good story though. One of the very first times you ended up, well, you were co-driving for Bailey and then she had to get out of the car for some reason and you became her driver. You were the driver and.
0: <laughs> you're I'm laughing. laughing because she didn't get out of the car. She stayed in the, so it was her first KOH. Uh, We had qualified the previous year in Indiana, just eating mud the entire time. And there's a picture somewhere online. And every time it pops up in my stories on whatever day it happens to be, I always look at that picture and it makes me smile because that was the first race she did in that car. We qualified her for KOH. And we, we ended up losing an alternator. So it was one of those races where you get as many laps as you can in a designated amount of time. And as soon as we lost the alternator, like the time was up. So all we could have, all we could have done was finish that lap, but it was enough to qualify her. And, uh, we were covered in mud. The car was covered in mud. You couldn't see a white speck on that thing. You couldn't see anything of us other than the whites of our eyes and our teeth. And this is mud soup, everything tear offs and rags. There wasn't enough in the world. So we were just running it, you know? So that's how we got her qualified for KOH. But then we go to KOH and you know, you have to think Bailey isn't large at all. She's a small little thing. She's (laughs) She's,
1: like five. Is she five, two, five, three?
0: I don't want her to get mad at me, but I think she's five, one or five, two. Um, (laughs) Yeah. She's, she's very small. And you have to think also that helmets are mostly about the same size. They're not, I mean, there's little differences slightly, but they all weigh almost the same. Well, she hadn't been in a race car for more than like two or three hours ever combined at that time when we started KOH. And I think we were at like hour 12 or something. And we were on lap three and we were in spooners outer limits loop that gets added every time. And she's like, Miller, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm quitting. And I was like, no, you're not quitting. You want me to drive the car for a little bit? And she's like, yes. And so she jumped in the passenger seat and I jumped in the driver's seat. And if anyone's ever seen uh, how the car set up for her, there's seat risers and extra floors and pedal extensions and, I and she's I five foot one or two, and wedged. you're six foot one. Yeah, I somehow wedged myself into that side of her car. My knees were touching the dash, like, all the time. And I drove a lap three of KOH, Uh, and we pulled into the pits. One of the pit guys was like, Bailey, you want to get out of the car? And she's like, no, I'm staying in the car. And th- I she wanted to cross that finish line, and Shannon said – You do whatever you can and make sure that car crosses that finish line, whether it's in, you know, third or 10th or 20th, or if it's after time expires, you make sure she crosses that finish line. And that was the year when we crossed the finish line, like two or three hours after the cutoff and they turned the live feed back on because our pit crew stayed out there that entire time and made sure that she made it to the finish line that year that that's the most important he's like you have to finish races you have to get to the finish line you do whatever you can to get to the finish line and it wasn't you know we just had some bad luck at the beginning of the day and we got stuck in lap traffic and that it is what it is but i ended up driving the third lap and the the reason why i started laughing when you said that is bailey actually fell asleep in the passenger seat of the car And they wrapped a hoodie around her neck underneath her helmet so that her head wouldn't bobble around when I pulled in you know, I pulled into the pits and she's like practically sleeping and they wrapped it and it was, you know, all the hammers trails, you know, wrecking ball, jack, all those were in the, and then you had to go across the MDR course, which I think you're aware of is the you know really whooped out east to west area. There's are some big holes. And I'm doing like seventy across there, and I look over and she's Passed out
1: with I'm that around
0: her neck, and I'm trying to look at the GPS from the driver's side to make sure I make the right turn off of the course up there because it's you know dark. Um, but we, I, I made it all the way through that, and I got to like where the last pit goes towards back towards Hammertown, like ten miles, and I stopped and I said, "All right, that's as far as I'm driving. You're driving it the rest of the way." And put her in. And and she jumped back in the driver's seat and drove it. But I think that that, that you know, kind of made her think for the following years, you know, that that's that's a lot of time. You have to be in the race car. It's not like a two to three hour race. it's a it's a ten to twelve. The next year we ran into the same the same thing where we ran into some bad luck. We're out on course way, way, way long. and halfway through lap three, she was exhausted, you know because we had been in the car for twelve or thirteen hours at the time. But once that, the first two years were over, she, she finished it after that all the time. So,
1: and she's finished every, she's finished every KOH, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think she got an official finish the, the first year, but, but she's finished every KOH since then. So let's talk
1: 2020 KOH 2020. This is the, this is the heartbreaker. That's uh this is the heartbreaker. And I'll, I'll tell it from, from my side, my side is, um, Everyone's, everyone's going to, you know, everyone's going to hear it right here. How, how terrible an individual I am. I get in my truck, like I watch and get every way off the line that morning. And then I go get in my truck and I peel out for Texas and I turn the live feed on and I watch the race as I'm headed, headed back to Texas. So I'm not there for the race. I'm not there for the finish. I'm just trying to get home. I'm at, you know, whatever, eight, 10 days you've been on the, the late bed. I'm like, I'm at this point I'm done. And the coverage the ultra four puts on for KOH is The live coverage is so so good, but so there I am bombing down I ten, headed back to Texas, and uh, see Wayland start blowing steam on whichever climb that was. So there yeah, I am, sure. yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm, I, I'm calling Matt Taylor, and I'm like Matt, uh, Way, Wayland is still fully under power. He's still at race speed, but he is losing all all coolant. You know. Do you know – are you aware or radio him because if he doesn't know? Because, you know, with the rear-engine car and the radiator mounted up high, you don't necessarily know that you're blowing off steam, yeah. especially if you're going at speed. And, yeah, uh, he's like, cool, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then uh, a couple you know hours later, there it is. You guys, you – Bailey driving, you and the that you've worked your way into first. And y'all were in first for a long time. Like, and the whole world was pulling for this girl. This woman – everyone's pulling for her. I mean, it was her, it was her day. It was her day and it was her day until it wasn't. And then y'all, you guys had a kind of a little bit of a catastrophic and uh, the day got away from you. You know, we, we know, Blyler ended up winning, but walk us through what you, what was going on in your head and what was going on in that car as you guys were, were leading. And did you know you were leading?
0: Well, going back to lap one, we knew we had a good pace going because uh, we could actually see the three other Campbell cars in front of us. Every time you would make like a 90 turn, you could see, we couldn't tell who, whose car was what, but we could definitely tell one of those is Shannon and one of them is Brian and one of them is Waylon. And we knew we had passed quite a few people and we pulled into main pit. And I guess at the end of lap one, they told us we were 30 seconds off of Shear for the corrected time lead which we knew we were, we had pre-ran and we had the GPS marked and we were doing exactly what we wanted to do. We planned for everything. We knew where our lines were. We knew in dust what we needed to, you know, be careful of because we were in dust the entire lap one. We could not see anything hardly. And we knew where to run the car, you know, basically. And we, Started lap two, and they told us, hey, you guys are 30 seconds behind Jason for the lead. And we're like, all right, well, we're you know, just going to run our pace still. And so we ran lap two, and I think when we left remote pit two is when they told us that we were corrected time, we were the lead, but we weren't the physical lead car, right? Uh, the only cars in front of us were, at that time, were Jason, JP Gomez, and Cameron Steele. And we had caught Cameron going into chocolate thunder and we passed him. He passed us back. We passed him. We passed him back on and off through Bender Alley wrecking ball over the top of the goat trail, you know, and down, down onto the MDR course. And he had, he passed us coming out of one of those last rock trails and then they instantly flatted a tire and we got by him. And then as soon as we turned towards guacamole, Jason cheer was pulled over there and him and Jason Berger were out, were already out of the car and they were jumping up and down on top of their car, cheering us on when we went by. Cause obviously they knew where they were. So they knew that we were now the second place car behind JP. We didn't know that. And then we went to the top of resolution, started dropping down resolution and there's JP's car right at the top of resolution pulled over on the side and he was still in it. He was just working on getting out and, we didn't know at the time that he was the lead car. Um, so we came down into Hammertown and we see no dust out in front of us the whole time. And we pulled up to the pit and that was our first fuel stop actually. We did the full first two laps cause Bailey's car has a pretty big fuel tank. And that was part of our strategy is we're not pitting for fuel until after lap two. And we pulled into the pit and they started fueling us. And I asked one of our pit guys, I'm like, are, are we in first? And they're like, you are first in time and first physically. And we're like, oh, wow, okay. That's a way. Did not know that. Uh, You know, we were just still running our pace. We had, you know, like I said, we had pre-ran the course and all the rocks, and we knew exactly where we were going on the rock trails. We knew the pace we wanted to run, and we were going to run our pace. And that was, you know, what our plan was. And if someone wanted to run faster, okay. So we started lap three, we had clean air for the first time. I mean, pretty much all day, uh, you know, we had segments of clean air during lap two because we start, you know, cars, there was only a handful of guys still left in front of us, but we were still running them down and we started lap three and everything felt great. Once Bailey got clean air, she, you know, we were running about 15 miles an hour faster than we were on lap one and two, obviously, cause we could see. Yeah. That <laughs> and, helps. yeah and, um, But we weren't – I mean, the car had plenty more. We just didn't want to go too fast. So they were giving us updates because Cameron was in second then after he had changed that tire. And so they were giving us updates at the pits when they could of, you know, how far behind us he was. So – And we were running about even to his pace. So we are like, all right, this feels comfortable. We're just going to stay here. And, you know, we worked our way through lap traffic out in the desert and the rock trails and stuff. And we made it all the way out to Emerson where you loop in to do the last rock loop before you come to the finish. And going across Emerson, one thing we, we always talk about is there's no point in doing 120 or 130 across the lake bed unless you need to. You know, are you racing somebody? Are you trying to catch somebody that's right in front of you? Cause that's pretty hard on the car. You know, you're zinging it pretty good. Um, so Bailey kicked, you know, we were doing about 95 was our pretty average speed out in the desert on lap three going into that. And she only went up to about 105 going across the lake bed. Just keep it. Don't, don't over rev the motor. Just keep it calm. We're good. You know, once we hit the rocks, just just like lap two, we'll be fine. And we got to the end of the lake bed, she let off. We started going up that little trail up the mountain. And as soon as we went to make that turn to go up the mountain, she's like, Oh, lost a belt. Mm-hmm. No, Biggie. Jump out and put a belt on. So I jump out to put the belt on and go to the back of the car, go to put the belt on and the the, pe- the part you slip it on is the water pump and the water pump pulley moved when I touched it. And I went, "Uh Oh, that's a problem. And, and I was like, Bailey, we have a problem. And she's like, what I go, the water pump pulley is shattered around the shaft. And she's like, Oh, <laughs> like that's not good. Like, and I was, I was heartbroken for her because you know, that's not nothing on, in her control.
1: Yeah. It's a, you know, a, a $90 pulley.
0: Yeah, and it was, you know, we had run totally flawless and clean up to that point. You know, we didn't slam into any rocks we didn't want to. We didn't take any bad lines in the rocks, nothing. And we're like, oh, boy. So, like, what can we do from here? Well, Waylon's out. Brian's out. We're, you know, let's see if Shannon will bring us a water pump. So he brought us a whole water pump pulley and everything. Because, you know, you ain't going to change that without a press. And uh, we ended up waiting about, I think it was an hour and 45 minutes for Shannon. Because he had changed a transmission after lap one. So he was a ways behind us. Plus he had to get to where we were from the pit, which was Maine. There's no pit between Maine and there.
1: No, but I want to th- throw this in there. Shannon changed, a, tra- and he's done this multiple races. And we've seen other comparisons change of transmission during the race still to get the finish. I mean, that is the commitment. That's the never say die. We're not stopping. We're not stopping until the green flag is no longer out. Like this course is no longer hot. We are going to be racing.
0: I think he ended up 10th or 11th too. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Which that's one thing about our cars, and you were mentioning Matt Taylor and the design on them, and Shannon is a big part of that too, is all of our cars are very easy to change transmissions in. He's like, I don't want a car that you have to gut the entire interior, or it takes, you got to pull the fuel tank, or it takes seven hours for some reason to change a transmission. He's like, I think they timed it. They changed it in the pit in an hour and five minutes, and it was hot. You know, like he had just finished lap one and he said, I think I'm losing, I forget what gear it was, but he got it. He got it there with the other two remaining gears and they changed it. So yeah, it's never, never quit. We ended up waiting for Shannon, got the water pump. He brought coolant, changed the water pump, got some coolant in it, cycled it, put, you know, topped it off. And then Bailey and I started finishing our lap three and, Like I said, it was, it was a heartbreaker telling her, Hey, you know, we're kind of done, you know, we're not done, done, but we're, we're done being out in front and taking this thing home. But after we fixed the car, she, you know, we got going again and she drove exactly like she did on lap two. We went through the rocks really clean. You know, I got out once and winched on aftershock, the, the main line on aftershock. That was a tough one you know, those IFS cars don't have the steering of a solid axle car. So it's a little bit tough to get up on that ledge and turn it. But that was the only time I got out of the car other other than when we thought we had just thrown a belt.
1: So, I mean, you guys are nailing your, nailing your spots on pacing. You're nailing your strategy. You're executing exactly to plan. It's working out. Bailey's driving smooth as possible, just clean. And she's gotten really fast and clean. And then just to suffer such a heartbreaker, there was a collective sigh that went across Hammer Town when that kind of news came out that you guys were off the side and that there was a, a brake issue.
0: Yep, yeah, that was, it was, it was tough, uh, but that's, you know, that's part of racing.
1: That is. Yeah. But still, that doesn't mean it doesn't sting.
0: It's tougher when it's uh, nothing that's your fault, you know? Which she she was driving a flawless race, and she even even did so after we got the car fixed. Um, you know, she picked the you know many places back off on our way to the finish, but in the rocks, lap three with the extra rock trails, she absolutely killed it. Just that one that one line on aftershock, I had to jump out and winch, no biggie. But other than that, she was just like lap two, so.
1: Well I mean some some of the notes I had down that I wanted to go over and we've actually just hit every single one you basically hit hit my strategy but you know some of the stuff that we've talked about that is just impeccable uh, is just like the value of the Campbell team effort I mean the value across all four cars and the the effort of this you never you know never say die right and the the value of your strategy you guys you guys basically put a strategy out there for it's all four cars, but then it's as a, a team as well. Don't be wrong, as soon as the green five drops, some of those change. But you guys are very, very good about triaging. And if it means Shannon, you know, or Waylon or someone throwing wrenches out or throwing parts out or whatever. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a story of Shannon bombing across whatever at hundred miles an hour with an alternator bouncing around on his lap or a starter on his lap or whatever it is that type of we're not done until somebody tells us we're done because we don't know how to stop the value of finishing and a lot of people i'm going to even th- throw myself in there included willingness to s- throw in the towel versus the willingness to never throw in the towel. And and when you run around with that mentality and exactly what happens in Campbell Enterprises camp is this, it's, it's contagious. It's like in baseball, they say, you know, hitting is contagious, you know, it's, it's attitude. And when everyone has that same attitude, then no one wants to be the one to say, Hey, we're done. Because whoever says it yeah. is like, boo, <laughs> quitter. And, uh, yeah. And and sometimes don't your own, as everyone knows, there comes a time when, especially at King of the Hammers, where you know seventy five percent of the field has to at some point come to the realization that they need to be a quitter, and they need to be a quitter at that time. Not that they selected and yeah. left out the day to be a quitter, but uh, they have to at some point you throw you you have to throw in the towel because you've catastrophically failed. Right? Yeah. That's just that's what the course does. That's why it's the single single hardest one day race in the world. The other one that I have is uh, the value of controlling what's in your control and recognizing what's not. That's exactly what happened to Bailey and here, you know, Bailey and you KOH 2020 this year, you, you know, you can wrap your head around this. This wasn't anything that we did. This wasn't a strategy issue. We didn't mess up. We just had an equipment failure. We had a mechanical failure on a pulley. Well, how do you, you, you can't plan for that. no. Right. I mean, that's yeah. just, that's, I mean, I, I, it yeah. was crazy. And, you know, when those guys came across the, you know, the live feed and said, you know, kind of what took y'all out, this collective ugh, uh, felt, felt so bad for you guys. I mean, pulling for you guys. So, man, uh, w- one of the last things before we start talking about the future that, uh, that I want to ask you about is uh, and get your input on, because I know you had, do have an opinion. I think it's a very, I think it's a very good grounded one. But advice for guys getting into ultra four and getting into racing and, you know, they're going to race, right? They're going to race. But then they immediately think, well, I, I'm going to race. So I'm a racer. So I need sponsors. And it doesn't work that yeah. way.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, you know, one thing I, I saw a lot too myself racing, obviously it's on a much different scale than the Campbell race team. Right. Is guys think, oh, I want to be a race car driver. You should sponsor for me. And it's, you have to, you know, it's the return on investment for them. You have to give them something back marketing wise, you know, what are they getting out of this? If they're not getting anything, they're not going to give you anything. If you're a nobody, you can't expect someone to just jump on board and give you whatever you want. You got to go out there. You got to, you got to run what you can run and go from there. And number one thing is, you know, you have to finish races. You can't just go out and go buck wild right. as, when every time the green flag flies and wreck your car. Or as simple as,
1: uh, you know, just signing up to race, you mail in your entry fee, you start, you know, you, you take the green, you take every single green, you know, the series has, but you just, you know, never finish well, or you don't finish. Uh, you, yeah. you, you can't sit back and say
0: the world owes me anything. Yeah. I saw a lot of, a lot of that in the racing I was doing of, you know, guys wanted to race and they thought that just because they proclaimed that they were racing, that people were just going to jump at the opportunity to sponsor them. And that's not the, I mean, sponsorship, is it's like another job, even at the small scale that I did it at, you know, I'm not at the scale of some of these, these big name teams like, you know, obviously, you know, I, I'm with the Campbells, but you know, like Lauren Healy and Vaughn. Like those guys, that's, uh, yeah, you see them and you're like, oh man, I want to do that. It It's a job, you know, it's, it's not like you just get to go out and screw off and someone else pays for it all the time.
1: No, yeah. I think that's exactly the key right there is like, you're going to start out, you're going to earn every dollar that you, these are future dollars by time in the shop, doing prep, getting your strategy right, getting your parts right, getting your spares right, getting it's that constant, constant, constant. And then you still got to do marketing. You got to put on your yes. marketing hat and you still got to be social media savvy. You've got to engage photographers. You've got to buy photo packages from events. You've got to go out and do testing on your car as well as you need to go out and uh, do tuning with a, 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 a videographer, a photographer, somebody to capture you in non-race stuff you know, where they can actually get stage shots that you can truly use in social media and you can use in regular media, in print media or in uh, other forms of audio video media. And that is outside of the green flag and that's outside of your shop prep. And that's so guys like
0: Lauren and, and Vaughn and, and like you're saying, unless you're, that's what you do full time. That's outside of you doing your job too. You're, you know, you, and you then let's say job, you have a, so.
1: and then you have a wife and you have kids and your kids have activities. Yeah. So these guys that are doing it full-time and 100%, yeah, don't get wrong. I'd love to sit back and say, oh, yeah, I want to be a professional race car driver and do this. I am sitting on this side of the screen to you today, and, and everyone's sitting in their cars are driving right now listening to this podcast. I'm over here going, the last thing I ever want to be at this point, and, you know, and I wish I would have known this about myself even 12, 15 years ago, you think you want to be a professional race car driver but now I've been on that side. I'm like, there ain't no effing way I wanted. I want that job. That's not a job that I want. I I do like the hey, let's you know. I like my shop time. I like to go out and you know, work out some aggressions. Maybe get a little red mist in the eyes. But the game that that's being played at the top 15, 20 drivers in Ultra Four. I I truly want no part of it. That's that's too much of a job. And as soon as it's, it becomes a job on that level, I'm out. <laughs> right. I, I love my family too much. I love my kid time too much. I, you know, uh, But I envy those guys for they have the wherewithal to be able to pull it off. It's definitely a lot of work and a big commitment. And I hope people that listen to this that that's clean and clear advice for them. Like, oh man, I really never thought about it in that regards. Like, I, I truly need a thirty-hour day.
0: Yeah, no kidding. You got to be uh, like Men in Black, Centaurian time. Oh no. You need 37 hours in a day for for real. Seriously.
1: Even that might not be enough (laughs) or or, or the ability to clone yourself. So man, so the future, the future, you're, you're going to continue racing for, for Bailey uh, in the 35 AZ. That's certainly going to go at a minimum through KOH, probably even through probably race one of 21,
0: maybe even further. Right. I I mean, we'll see. It's Bailey. She wants to get back in her car. I can she's, tell you
1: that. She's she's fierce. Five. She is five foot of fury. Call her the triple yeah. F. Five, she's gonna kick my butt for calling, <laughs> for saying five foot. She's like I'm five one now. <laughs> oh, I know Bailey will listen to this, and then um, and then she won't respond to my text, and she'll just stay angry at me. I love her for that. Yeah, man. So you guys, you're gonna work on that Koh win here in 21. You and Michael. Pendleton, try to try to get Bailey a win. I don't think that has the same feeling to her. Like, even if you guys, let's say you guys well, win and she's driver record, right? How, well, how is that going to work for day?
0: That doesn't count. She has to win.
1: Right. That's right. That it. doesn't <laughs> work for her.
0: Oh, that's what I told her. I said, Bailey, we, how are we going to win KOH 2021 now?
1: Yeah. She's like what she, she can get in the, <laughs> I mean, she's going to be super pregnant at that point. She can't even get in for a start or a finish. So does that mean that yeah. does that mean you will be driver record for twenty one?
0: I, I don't I don't even know what the plan is yet. Cross that bridge when we get we're, there. We're we're uh, st- trying to plan uh, for nationals because that's coming up here in four weeks, and in the meantime, I've got I've got this rebel stuff to deal with. Uh, so we got our hands full.
1: And you still have a job?
0: Yes. yes. Yeah. There's that too. Yeah,
1: this, this little thing that we use to pay bills. Oh my gosh, man. Do you th- do you think that this time uh, in Bailey's card opens any other forty four hundred doors for you, or do you even want them to be open?
0: I don't know. Like like I was just you know we were just talking about it's a huge commitment to be able to run at that level. I don't I don't know.
1: Win races that that'll solve some problems. I'm sure it, it'll at <laughs> least it at least open the doors
0: and then you have the the ability to say yay or nay. When you have to. I know Bailey is, she works her butt off. She is at the shop every day. She's working on her car. She's working on something for her car. She's working on something marketing-wise, something. And that's, you know, that's what she does. And that's a lot of work. But, you know, it's also her car. So it's, I can say it's easy for me, quote unquote, to just show up and co-drive or whatever. But it's still, you know, even anyone on the team Does a lot of work.
1: Yeah. You're, you're kind of this like arrive and drive prima Donna now.
0: No, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, with the current schedule, kind of, because I've, you know, I've got, I've got to get this Jeep ready for my wife and then take her up to Tahoe. And then when I get back, we have one weekend and then we go to nationals. So,
1: well, I will see you in Oklahoma, man, Ryan. Thank you for uh, for agreeing to come on the talent tank. Thank you for sitting down with me. Thank you for, uh, j- I mean, just being awesome. Thank you for the insight into uh, what's going on there at Campbell's right now. Um, I think it's super cool. When I uh, when I heard that you were you were going to pick up the reins and you were going to be the, the 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 driver for the thirty five car, uh, I was pretty excited. I, I mean, you've you've earned that. You have the skill set for that. Uh, it's in definitely. If there was ever any doubts you know, I think those were set aside after Moab this past weekend. I mean, aside from, you know, your propensity to flat tires on the right side, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, 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 <laughs> dig that in there, man. Brian, did, did, uh, did we cover everything you kind of ha- wanted to get out there? I think we did. Thank you. Did man. I had a great time. I uh, hope everyone, uh that, uh, that, pulled this streaming up and listen to the talent tank, uh, listen to, uh, uh, Miller here for the last uh, two hours. Thank you. Thank you guys for uh, for listening. On that note, Ryan, we're out. Thanks for having me, Wyatt. Oh, absolutely. We'll catch you guys next week. Have a good one. Thank you for listening and
0: taking a dive into The Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at The Talent Tank or our website, thetalentank.com.